All righty. So we are continuing continuing on this piece from uh, Rav Shimshon David Pincus, uh, that they, as we mentioned, they publishes a separate kuntras, Tifarta Shel Torah, and in this uh, this piece, he's been developing the idea that the main thing that we need to focus our attention on is really going to be our relationship with Hakadosh Baruch Hu. The mitzvahs which we do are a means to be able co- to connect with Hakadosh Baruch Hu, but ultimately everything is going to revolve around the uh, the relationship. And he had pointed out about how every time Hakadosh Baruch Hu promised one of the avos about what the future is going to be in store for the Jewish people, so he never mentioned anything about Torah. He mentioned being in Eretz Yisrael, and Rav Pincus used borrowed a lot of a- analogies and metaphors from marriage. To go ahead and illustrate what the point of the uh, the point of a relationship is, like he said that uh, when uh, a couple is engaged or a couple is married, we we wish that they should build a bias nema Yisrael, but the household is just the place where the love is going to be contained. It's not about having a house; it's about the love which is going to hopefully exist within that home. That's the point. So Eretz Yisrael is the place where we are going to meet and convene with God. But it's not about the place per se. It's not all about Eretz Yisrael. It's about that that's the most conducive place for us to be able to connect with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But ultimately, that's why in prayer, so HaKadosh Baruch Hu didn't mandate, didn't require on a Daraisa level that there's going to be such a thing as prayer. Because to mandate a conversation is like forcing a husband and wife to talk with one another when they're not in the mood. It's not going to be representative of anything which is uh, which is loving. It's going to be something which one is forced to uh, to do. It's like uh, um, what do they call it at work? Sometimes you have to do that re-education for um, team uh, building meeting. What team building meeting? Where yeah, yeah, some somebody who speaks offensively or somebody who. Um, um, doesn't show sufficient sensitivity, sensitivity training. So it's like sensitivity training that somebody's forced to go to. So if you're forced to go, so you have no choice but to show up. But the likelihood that any of that's going to actually go into the brain is between zero and less than that. So forcing a conversation also is not going to be very productive. Okay, so now where we pick it up, let me go ahead and pull this up on the screen. Okay, so where we pick it up, so we are on uh, Os Zion. So we are on this uh, uh, section which is there. Now the first paragraph here of Zion, we're actually uh, just going to read the initial question, and then we're going to jump to the uh, to the next paragraph. But he says, Rabbeinu Chassam Sofer, B'tshuva Sof Yud, Matmi al Rambam. So it says, the Chassam Sofer, goes ahead, in one of his tshuvas, he expresses surprise towards the Rambam, that the the Rambam went ahead and included belief in the coming of Mashiach as one of the 13 principles of faith. And then he goes ahead and he quotes, you know, uh, specifically what the Chassam Sofer says, and without reading it inside, he uh, the uh, Rav Pinka says, what the Chassam Sofer means to express his surprise at this is that the Chassam Sofer is not questioning whether or not there will be a Geula which will include the arrival of Mashiach. Nobody's questioning that that's something which will happen. 
אבל למה אמונה זו היא בגדר עיקר בתורה? What the Chassam Sofer is questioning is, why is that belief considered to be a principle, an essential principle of faith? And if you remember from the series that we did on the 13 principles, we said that by definition, the Rambam says that somebody who does not believe in one of the 13 principles doesn't get reward. So it's something which one cannot function, cannot be a functional Jew without a belief in all these 13 principles. And the Chassam Sofer is now saying, why, why is that so? Who cares? Let's say in your generation, in our generation, Mashiach doesn't come. He's not going to come until the next generation, let's say. So, so in the event that we were to live in a generation in which Mashiach does not come, so what's going to be the big deal? There have been hundreds of generations in Jewish history of people who did not experience the Geulah, but they believed that there's but they believed in Hashem, they believed in Torah, they studied Torah, they did mitzvahs, and undoubtedly they entered into Gan Eden and the world to come because of their beliefs and because of their practices. So that's something. So the arrival of Mashiach was not something which was essential to their Avodas Hashem. They were able to be great Ovde Hashem, even without Mashiach coming. So why is it that without a belief in this final gula of the end of days, that we would say that the whole Torah, it's, it becomes meaningless, it becomes irrelevant. To the point where we say that belief in the coming of Mashiach is an essential part, an essential and fundamental part of our belief. As he said, plenty of generations have served God without a Mashiach. And they were they were good Jews. Nobody's criticizing their uh, their Yiddishkeit or their practice. So why is this something which is so important? So now explains uh, Rav Pincus. Venir Baza, it seems. He says that our belief in the arrival of Mashiach is not a fundamental principle because of the future event which is going to take place. That's not the Iker part of it. That's not the fundamental part of it. That's not the essential part which we need to be focused on. In other words, that we don't, that our belief is not rooted in that future event. But rather, the reason why belief in Mashiach is a fundamental principle, one of the 13 fundamental principles according to the Rambam, is because of the impact that it has on us today. Nothing to do with the future, with what will be when Mashiach comes, but it revolves entirely around our belief in the moment right now, in the here and now. Because the whole purpose of Judaism, practicing Judaism today, is is that a person has to understand what is going to be with us, how we're going to function, how we're going to exist, even in our gullus state, even in our state of exile, it's essential to know who and what exactly we are. And we have to believe right now in this concept, because absent this awareness in the moment, in this moment, that's going to uh, um, weaken or that's going to negatively impact our practice. Why is that so? So he goes back to what he's been explaining. He says, once, as we talked about, 
once we go ahead and we we distill what uh, the relationship is, what the covenant is that was created between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and Klai Yisrael at Har Sinai, it is a loving relationship. You take away all of the uh, the accoutrements, you take away all of the mitzvahs and all the other things, the bottom line is that you take out all the furniture and you take out all of the uh, the other stuff, the mementos, that at the end of the day, what we have is a loving relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Khan Bolam Hazet. And as Pincus emphasized, the relationship exists. It's not a future relationship. We're not, there's Olam Haba is going to be a future time, but the, our, our relationship is not about what our relationship will be in the future. Our relationship is, is about the here and now. Now, primarily, the place where that loving relationship is going to manifest, is going to exist, where it should manifest and exist, should be in our home. Our home meaning Eretz Yisrael, and within Eretz Yisrael, specifically in the Beis HaMikdash. Ubris tikarei kach rak imhi bris olam. And by the very definition of the idea, a covenant is something which has to be forever. It cannot be something which can change over time. It cannot be something which is going to be lost over time or forfeited over time. By the very definition of a bris, it has to be something which is olam. Avas olam, we, we say. That's an everlasting love. Because shim yitzuyar, because if there was even the possibility that at some point over the course of Jewish history, God were to toss us aside, he were to reject us, he were to say that, you know what, they're not worth it anymore and they're not valuable to me, then you know what that would mean? So then what that would do to the Torah and what that would do to mitzvahs is it would just make it a business transaction, like we talked about a few weeks ago, that if people who mistakenly think that if I do these mitzvahs, then Hashem will give me, so it's a tit for tat, it's an exchange, I give you something, you give me something back, so if we believed that HaKadosh Baruch Hu could ultimately reject us as a people, that would mean that the entire Torah is just a business arrangement. This is a contract. You do this, I expect you to do this. If you do this, you'll be rewarded. If you don't do this, if you do violate the contract, there'll be consequences, there'll be, uh, there'll be punishments and whatnot. So that would be the entire uh, scope of the Torah, just a business agreement between two parties. And even though it's true that the reason we do mitzvahs is to satisfy, to fulfill God's will, so he says, and haray, um, uh, and even a non-Jew is not allowed to throw off of him the yoke of heaven. And even a non-Jew isn't allowed to change even one iota of Torah at all. So the fact that the Torah is something which is universal and it's not changing, that in and of itself is not something which is uniquely Jewish. Because from our perspective, even a Jew would not, even a, a, a non-Jew would not be able to do so. And we say that, um, okay, so he says that, uh, but nonetheless, but just looking at the Torah as a set of instructions of what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do, that's not Yiddishkeit. Because Shehayadus, and here's the key line that you want to, uh, you want to like uh, engrave in your brain, in your eyes, 
Shehayadus hikrisas bris ava udvegas. Because if you want to know what is Yiddishkeit, Yiddishkeit is the establishment of a covenant, or let's say better, the establishment of a relationship that is loving and that is connecting. That's ultimately what we're looking for in, in Yiddishkeit. That's what it is, is to be able to have that loving connection, that loving attachment with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And everything that we do, the Torah which we study, the mitzvahs which we do, are a means to be able to get us to that goal, but it's not the goal in and of itself. That's not what it's all about. And now again, he says, What could this be compared to? So he says that if you have a father who went ahead and tossed his son out of the house, he didn't like what the son was doing. Some got an ear piercing or something like that. I don't know. So he went ahead and he said, not in my home. God, uh, you can go ahead and do that in your own home, but not in my home. So now if that were to happen, that the father or parent throws the child out of the house, so practically, from the child's perspective, what difference does it make whether the parent's intention of throwing the child out was for the sake of chinuch, he was trying to educate the child and trying to teach him the correct way to behave, even though granted he may have done so in anger, but does it really make a difference whether the intention was to redirect the child or to correct the child's behavior? Or whether or not the parent just says, you know what, I'm fed up, I can't look at you anymore, I can't see you anymore, I don't want you to be anywhere in my Dalaramos, just get out of my sight. He says, what's the difference between them? He says, Kola Hevdel, so the, the difference between those two has nothing to do with the future. The bottom line is the kid's out of the house. So it doesn't make a difference what the intention is. He says, but the only difference is going to be whether or not there is some, um, there's a, uh, a, a, a relationship which still exists and the, the parent may be handling it bad, but there's a relationship which still exists in the now. I want you to go ahead and to uh, to uh, I want to change. I want to affect a change in your behavior, or whether the relationship has been severed entirely, and I don't want to see you ever again. But in terms of where the child is, doesn't make a difference. Either way, he's out of the house. And now he says, therefore, bring it back to Mashiach. He says, Im Mashiach lo yavo. If it were possible. Again, it's a fundamental principle of belief, and therefore we believe that it for sure is going to happen. But if it were possible, if we could entertain the possibility that Mashiach would not come, that means HaKadosh Baruch Hu has essentially tossed us from Eretz Yisrael. He has destroyed the Beis Amitash, and the relationship is never going to be restored again. So if that were true, V'chol habris mitchila haiserak lezman. What that would mean is, is that the relationship that we had with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the relationship which was created at Har Sinai, was only temporary. It wasn't an avas olam. It wasn't an everlasting eternal love, an eternal relationship. It was a relationship which is tluya bedavar. It's a relationship which depends on something that we need to earn and something which we can actually lose in the event that we don't, uh, we don't earn it. That's not a, an eternal, unconditional love. And if something could be lost, that means that it's not really a covenant. Because as he said, a covenant by its very definition is something which is eternal, unchanging, and can never be lost. And therefore, that would not be a Yiddishkeit. 
And therefore, if it were possible that Kosh Baruch Hu threw us out at the time of the second, at the Churban of the second base of Mitosh, and we were to never return again, there would never be a subsequent Geula, that means that we never had a real relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. Not only in that, the fact that it turns out we don't have a real relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, that's not something which is future related. The fact that there won't be a future generation which will return to Eretz Yisrael and not have a Beis Hamikdash that impacts us right now because that means that the totality of our of Yiddishkeit is not about the relationship with Hakadosh Baruch Hu. The totality of Yiddishkeit is this business arrangement wherein we do some things and Hakadosh Baruch Hu gives us something back. And to reduce Yiddishkeit to a reward and punishment type of thing. You do, and I'll give you. You don't do, and I'm not going to give you. Or you don't do, and I'm going to punish you. That has nothing to do with the... That has nothing to do with a relationship. That has to do with the business arrangement. Is the business agreement that you have with this partner, is it working out for you? Or is it not something which is working out for you? But it has nothing at all to do with the loving relationship. And now he says takes it even a step further, as if it wasn't uh, emphasized strongly enough until now, now he takes it even deeper. And he says, It seems to me, that this overall idea, the theory which he's presenting to us, this overall thought which he's presenting about the essential nature of our relationship, is not something, it's not just a fundamental principle which exists, uh, in terms of Yiddishkeit, but this, this actually comes down to the very foundation of all of creation. So it's not just a principle of Judaism, all of creation really rests on this principle. Why? He says, because we all know, we know that the purpose of creation was to have a system. One of the reasons why Kosh Baruch Hu created the world, here we are right before Rosh Hashanah, Erev Rosh Hashanah, and we go back to the original creation, Hayom Haras Olam. Today is the birthday of the world, and we remind ourselves of why HaKash Baruch Hu created the world in the first place, and, and a major component of that is Charv Onesh. Going back to the Ramchal, that uh, that uh, the reason why Akash Baruch Hu created, even though Akash Baruch Hu is Kulotov, he's entirely good. But what Akash Baruch Hu wanted more than anything is to be able to do good to others. If you are a Tov, then you want to be Metiv. If you are good, then you want to bestow good upon others. And if Akash Baruch Hu is going to bestow good, it has to be the ultimate good. And the ultimate good cannot be something which is just going to be granted automatically. It has to be something which is earned. Somebody gives you something that you didn't earn, it it it, uh, it it doesn't taste the same, you don't experience it the same, it's not going to be enjoyed to the same degree. So the existence in order, so therefore in order for us to be able to earn that tov, there has to be the possibility of doing mitzvahs, but if the only option was doing mitzvahs and there was no option for Averas, then we wouldn't be earning it. Then it would just be a no-brainer, then we would just be uh, robots who were programmed to go ahead and do good. So in order for us to earn the ultimate good, there has to be the possibility for bad. So, so within the DNA of creation, it was inevitable that there's going to be this concept of scharva onish, there's going to be reward and punishment. Otherwise, the whole purpose of the whole function of the universe doesn't is not going to be able to uh, to manifest. Visha olam haba, 
Lo yehei nama de kisufa. So this is the idea. That's the phrase with the Kabbalistic phrase which they use. Nama it means bread. It's Aramaic for bread. Kisufa is Aramaic for humiliation. In other words, that if a Baruch Hu would just go ahead and uh, create a universe and just put us in the first place, not in the uh, in the uh, the entry the entry room, but he were to go ahead and put us into the ballroom, he would just deposit us immediately into Olam Haba. So then we'd be embarrassed that we didn't earn any of this goodness, and here you are giving us all of this uh, this uh, this stuff which you didn't really earn. It's like when you have the uh, the soccer league and every team gets a, a trophy, even the losers. So if they get a trophy and they know that they lost, the trophy doesn't mean much to them. They don't like that trophy very much because they didn't earn it at all. It's not it's not valuable. So Akash Baruch Hu specifically did not put us into a circumstance where he's just depositing us into Olam Haba. We need to earn it. And by the very definition, if it needs to be earned, that means that there has to be the possibility for bad. But everything is Charva Onish. And this idea, as we said, is rooted in the Ramchal, the Ramchal's perspective on creation in why Hashem created the world. He says, And this is the way the Ramchal presents this idea in Das Tvunos, where he says, So as we know, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is all good. right? The ultimate good is what HaKadosh Baruch Hu is. When we talk about HaKadosh Baruch Hu being perfect, so that means that whatever trait we assign to God, however, however we anthropomorphize, if there's actually such a word, but however we anthropomorphize God, it's always going to be at a 10. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, by, very de- by definition, always has to be at a 10. But he said, and therefore, Vamna mechok hatov So if we define God, if we characterize God as good, so a part of that, an essential part of that definition is, that means he's a metiv as well. He does good as well. He is good and he does good. That's tov and metiv. And that's why God created a universe. And that's why he created mankind and Klai Yisrael specifically in order to be able to be native, to be able to do good towards them. Because just simple logic says, if there's nobody to receive your good, then you're not being good. You can't do chesed to nobody. If you're doing a chesed, there has to be a recipient of that chesed. So if God is going to be a native, if he's going to be one who does good, there has to be a recipient of that good. And that's mankind, Klaiso. But at the same time, but if that good is going to be a fully experienced good, so Yad Hanisgava, so Kaj knew in his lofty and elevated wisdom. The only way that the recipients of that good are going to appreciate the good is if they earn it. It can't be gifted to them. It has to be something which is earned through their effort. It can't be easy shmizi. If it's easy shmizi, it doesn't mean much. Something that the uh, person invests in and they work hard in order to earn, that is going to be the ultimate good. He is then... You because then they become the proud owners of that good, because it's something which they earned, not something which was simply gifted to them. And 
And if the, the, the Ramchal says that if HaKadosh Baruch Hu were to go ahead and provide us with that good as a gift, that would be comparable to the recipient of tzedakah. People who receive tzedakah generally are not proud to receive that. They wish they didn't have to receive it. And it's something which is, in many ways, it's distasteful to them to have to receive that uh, that uh, that tzedakah. So in the same way, HaKadosh Baruch Hu knew that if he were to just go ahead and uh, uh, drop us off in Olam Haba, so then that would ultimately take away from our uh, from our ability to enjoy that tov. And if we can't fully enjoy the tov, which HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants to bestow on us, then he's not being a mativ. So he has to, in order to be, if HaKadosh Baruch Hu is a tov, he has to be mativ. If he's going to be mativ, if he's going to do good, there has to be a recipient of the good. And the recipient of that good has to be able to fully experience that good also at level 10. Not at level five or level seven or level nine, but it has to be received at, it has to be experienced at level 10. And the only way we're going to do so is the, the full appreciation of that is going to arise only in the event that it's something that we earned through our effort, not something which was just gifted to us without any effort whatsoever. And therefore, he says, so that's, that's the end of the Ramchal. Now, again, we have to swing this back around to our case over here. So he says, oh, sorry. So he says that um, however, there's a difficulty which arises from this uh, Ramchal. The prepared Dalad Mishar Bitachon, Kasim Chavas Alavavos, being in Schar Olam Haba. Because if you look in the uh, the uh, famous uh, one of the Musas from one of the earliest Musas from which is written the Chovas Halavavos, the uh, duties of the heart, written by one of the Rishonim. So in his uh, in that sefer, so he writes regarding reward in Olam Haba. Um, Yeah, so he writes, uh, So he said, He says that one of the chasadim, one of the kindnesses which HaKadosh Baruch Hu does, Nidava in his benevolence, in his voluntary benevolence, Vitova in his goodness, So he quotes this Pasuk in Tehillim, that Kindness is is ascribed to you, God, because you repay man according to his ways. So what does that mean when we say that Hashem repays a person according to his ways? The idea behind this is, if we were to go, if HaKadosh Baruch Hu was to look out at mankind, or he was to look out at the totality of Jewish history, all the people who, who exist, um, uh, it would be that a- any one individual's behavior would be like a grain of sand amongst this huge beach, which is filled with uh, grains of sand. And So the most that you're going to be able to do is nothing compared to uh, all the goodness which HaKadosh Baruch Hu does. The Kol Shekein Im 
And certainly in the event that a person goes out and sins, chasu shalom, so that also is something which is to sin against God, is something which is obviously very bad. Um and if a Baruch Hu were to start being exacting with uh, in demanding of a person in terms of the uh, that they should recognize and they should acknowledge good, so So regardless of anything which you do, it's not going to be able to measure up. There's no way that anything that we can do could express appreciation for all of the goodness and all the kindness, all the things that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has done for us over the course of our lives, all of that, it's impossible to go ahead and repay HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But, um, right, so now he says, now putting aside the rest of the language of the of the Chova Salavavos, so now Rapinka says, let me go ahead and frame the what he's trying to point out, what would seem to be an inconsistency between the perspective of the Chobas HaLavavos on the one hand and the perspective of the Ramchal on the other hand. And he's specifically, he's intentionally uh, presenting it as if there is a contradiction, as if there's an inconsistency, but ultimately to demonstrate to us that really there's no inconsistency at all. And he says what, what the Chobas HaLavavos uh, means is, both in Shepashadu, because the truth is, is that we don't receive reward for our behavior, for the things which we do. There's not really reward. So in, in Cain, because it, it, it pales in comparison to anything which, to all the stuff which HaKadosh Baruch Hu does for us. So anything which he gives us can't really compare. Being that, at the end of the day, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is giving us reward anyways, and the reward which he's giving is so vast, right? The, the best mitzvah which you do over the course of your lifetime, you sneak around in the middle of the night, you slip some money in somebody's door, right at their, as they're desperate and they're about to give up, and they're about to be miyayish, and you mamish, you save them and their family, and you save all sorts of wonderful things. Gavald, gavald, gavald. You did the greatest act of chesed, uh, chesed and tzedakah that you could possibly imagine. So in this world where you went ahead and you gave this a tremendous amount of tzedakah and you did it in such a sensitive, caring, loving way. Givaldic, that's it's mamish unbelievable. But at the end of the day, what do you receive for that? You receive eternal reward from God. So as great as your chesed was, when you go ahead, it's like uh, I say uh, sometimes that um, our, our perspective on things has to, is very much defined by our, our immediate surroundings. But as you, as you compare it outside of that, so then you see how small your world is, and how what you think is a big accomplishment in your narrow world is really nothing compared to the big leagues. So the example, if you remember me giving, is that my senior year in high school, so I was the MVP of the basketball, in in our basketball league, in our conference. Okay, so I thought, okay, if I'm the MVP, it must be that I'm a pretty good ball player. Then one day in the spring, we go out and we played with somebody from those from the, you know, Skokie Note, a guy who, who had, had just made the Niles West team, the Niles West basketball team. So I said, okay, he's a sophomore, just made the varsity. I was MVP in our conference. So we must be somewhere, you know, similar in terms of skill. And the guy was, he was literally head and shoulders ahead of me. It wasn't even like a, like a close in terms of how we were able to play together because he was so much better than me. 
in being, he was just a bench player on Niles West. So imagine what their starters must be. And Niles West, again, for those who know, isn't known for their basketball prowess. So you go ahead and you compare them with some of the elite high school players. They must be so much better than that. And elite high school players usually end up sitting on the bench in college. So compare them with the actually elite college players and as you go up the ring you know so then you think that you know we sit to watch basketball games on tv and say oh that guy doesn't know how to shoot he doesn't know how to pass he doesn't know how to play ball it's like it's it's ludicrous you know to make a comparison that you think that you understand the game and how how good they are there's no comparison at all so as much as we think in our little world that I did this tremendous act of tzedakah and there's going to be articles about me in Mishpacha magazine, in the Ami magazine and whatever is going to be and I'm such a, I'm such a tzaddik in terms of what I do, that's nothing when you get to the eternal reward which HaKadosh Baruch is going to grant us. So when you think about it from that perspective that the eternal reward which HaKadosh Baruch is going to grant us at the end of the day, he's gifting it to us. I didn't earn that much of a, a of reward. I did something good. So it's okay. I did something good. But the eternal reward which Akash Baruch was going to grant me, that, that's way beyond anything which I earned on my own, that ultimately is a gift. So if, like the Ramchal said, the whole point of reward and ownership is that we have to earn our keep, that if Akash Baruch just put us into Gan Eden, then we wouldn't appreciate it because we didn't earn it. So Rav Pinkas is asking, at the end of the day, the reward is so vast that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives, it doesn't compare. Child's like saying to a child, listen, I'm not going to give you a gift until you go ahead and you learn to tie your shoes. So he learns to tie his shoes and you give him a million dollars. What? Nobody's going to say that the child earned a million dollars because he learned how to tie his shoes. Granted, if he learned how to tie his shoes, you'll give him five dollars maybe. If he struggled with it, you'll give him five dollars. The other $999,000, 995 that's a gift. You can't say that he earned that. It doesn't make any sense. So, the, so Rav Pincus is pointing out that at the end of the day, we have to recognize that whatever reward we are going to receive is the Nama de Kisufa. It should be humiliating to us because we didn't earn it, because it's so far beyond what we actually did. It doesn't reflect what we actually did to have that much eternal reward. So how could we go ahead and say that this is something which we earned and we're not going to be embarrassed? At the end of the day, our, our actions, the mitzvahs which we do in comparison with the reward which HaKadosh Baruch Hu grants, pales in comparison. It's like, as he said, it's like a grain of sand on the beach. What is that? Nobody would notice that it's there or not there, one grain. And therefore, we're left in that circumstance where we are going to be embarrassed and humiliated by the reward which we see, which we receive. And if that's true, so then what's the point of making us earn it? If when we try and earn it, it's just going to be gifted to us in, in a way where we're going to be embarrassed anyways, so then what did HaKadosh Baruch Hu gain? So that is his question. So now let's see the answer. We'll see one more paragraph tonight for uh, the uh, the primary part of the answer. I don't want to leave you hanging out for a couple of weeks. With, with this question, especially as we go into uh, to Rosh Hashanah, we should understand what uh, what reward is about. So he says, He says the Ramchal is 100% correct. They, the whole purpose of our mitzvah performance, of granting us life in this world, in which to be able to grow and to do mitzvahs, and to be able to connect to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, 
that is so that we should not be humiliated at Olam Haba when we receive eternal reward. Aval hasiba kisufa. But the reason why the reward we're going to have in Olam Haba for the Torah which we studied in the mitzvahs which we did, the reason why it's not that bread of humiliation is it's not because our actions in our mitzvah performance truly earn that concentrated form of eternal reward from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. because it's clear, as explained from the Chovas HaLavavos, at the end of the day, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is giving us a gift, and what he gives us, that eternal reward to be in close proximity to God, is not a, it doesn't correlate to the mitzvahs which we did. The mitzvahs which we did are really small in comparison with that reward. But, he says, now here, again, it's just so beautiful how he, he pulls out the, the, the correct mashal. He says, He says, if you have a child who lives in his parents' home and he's being supported financially by his parents, and the child is young enough where, whatever age that may be, maybe, uh, maybe 5 or 15 or 25 or 35, but he says that the parent is going ahead and providing for the needs of the child, and konelo dira yakar urihite pe'er. He says that, um, he says that in the father goes out and says, you know what, my, 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 my dear child, I'm going to buy, I'm going to um, paint your room beautifully and I'm going to get you great furniture. I want to make sure that your mattress is comfortable. I want to make sure that your closet is, is functional. Everything is going to be done. It's just going to be beautiful. So does a child feel that sense of embarrassment when the parent is providing a beautiful bedroom for him? No. Let's say another example. You have a very wealthy chassan who goes out and marries a girl who does not come from a wealthy family. So he comes from wealth and opulence, and she comes from just barely scraping by, just barely being able to get, uh, you know, leftover uh, kichel and herring fat. And he goes ahead, and once they're married, so all of a sudden she now has a hundred maidservants taking care of her every need. She's got people who clean the house for her, special people just for the windows, special people for the floors, people who make lunch, people who make dinner, people who make breakfast, people who do the shopping, people who do the laundry. Everything is taken care of. And she just sits on a lazy boy chair and she just enjoys herself doing nothing because she has a hundred people taking care of everything in the house. And not only that, not only is he such a loving husband, one we all dream of, but the husband also goes out of his way to buy her gold and precious jewels for jewelry. Not that she's going anywhere because everything is taken care of. But she sits around in the house on the lazy boy chair with food and drinks being served for her without having to get out of the chair at all. And on top of that, there's a constant change of gold and diamonds and rubies and emeralds and whatever other stuff uh, that uh, that uh, one may give pearls, whatever it is. So is she going to be embarrassed? The fact that her wealthy husband buys her all this wonderful jewelry and takes care of all of her needs? Not at all. But why not? Why isn't the child embarrassed by his beautiful bedroom? Or why isn't the wife embarrassed by the wonderful house that she lives in and all of the maidservants and all the things which are being taken care of for her? 
So he says, absolutely beautiful. He says, Because it's clear that when you have a closeness, a love, and a relationship between two parties, the recipient of that love and the relationship, the good parts of the relationship, is not embarrassed by that because that's what you do in a relationship. In a loving relationship, you give your spouse things, you give your child things, and they're not embarrassed when they receive those things because that's how you function in a loving, caring relationship is you gift to one another. That's one of the ways by which you express that love. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants to make sure that if he just went ahead and planted us in Olam Haba, then we did nothing at all to earn it. We don't even know that we have a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He's just giving us all that goodness. If all that happened was he just gave us goodness, then we'd be subject to that Nama de Kisufa, we'd be subject to that embarrassment and the humiliation that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us this eternal reward and we did nothing to earn it. But knowing that our function in this world is to establish a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, once I know and I put in all this effort to make sure that I forge this loving, meaningful attachment to relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, then when HaKadosh Baruch Hu showers me with all sorts of goodies and eternal reward in all of the tov, which HaKadosh Baruch Hu as a metiv is going to provide, I'm not embarrassed by that because I see that not is gifting something to me, I see that as a manifestation of our relationship. I and HaKadosh Baruch Hu have a loving relationship, and being that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is this incredibly wealthy being, and he can provide me with all sorts of goodies, when he does so, it's not because it's a gift, it's because that's how he's showing his love. And when it's received as part of, a, in the context of a loving relationship, that's going to counterbalance that's going to undo the potential that we would see it as HaKadosh Baruch Hu giving us that Nama de Kisufa, the bread of embarrassment. And that, once again, how all of this, as, as he's been developing, how all of this revolves around the fact that the main thing we need to focus our attention on is our loving relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And, being that we're right before Rosh Hashanah, that's ultimately what the, day, the days of Rosh Hashanah are about, is to remind ourselves of the relationship, the malchus that we have, in kabanim, in kavadim, that we want to be like children to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, children who are not embarrassed when you get a beautiful bedroom set, because that's what loving that's what loving parents who have a means to do so, that's what they're going to provide for their children, and that's what the way that we should perceive HaKadosh Baruch Hu as well. All right, so we are going to hold it over here, um, as far as... Um, 